This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. When somebody tells Mike Pence he is Donald Trump's vice president, that guy's going to be shocked. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, with me is my, my colleague, Sarah Cliff. And uh, joining us from New York is, is The Daily Show's Ezra Klein. Uh, <laughs> How is The Daily Show, Ezra? Daily Show is good. Why is everything in New York so far from everything else in New York? Because it's, it's, a, it's a big apple. Yeah. <laughs> the largest apple if, it was, if things were close together, it would be small. Um, the show is good. It is very, it is very funny. So last night, so I was on the Daily Show after the VP debate. You can find it on the interweb. And right before I came on, they did one of their man on the street skits. And the point of the man on the street skit, like literally, basically the last thing the the correspondent said was they had disguised all these experts as people on the street because nobody quote wanted to listen to boring nerds talk. Then it's like break. Now a boring nerd. <laughs> so no, I felt like I felt like the show. Nerd, no, I felt like the show was sequenced unusually. <laughs> so, so you 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 were you were on uh, the the Comedy Central to discuss the vice presidential debate. The I was, most, and by the, the way, the most important know, moment in any presidential campaign. I know the segue you're trying to do here, but if you are interested in the show, uh, you should listen to my Trevor Noah interview on my other podcast. It is good. It's egregious. <laughs> um, <laughs> Vice presidential debate. That's what I was there for. It was, I thought, a strange debate to watch because Tim Kaine clearly went in with a game plan of trying to make Mike Pence defend specific things Donald Trump has said or done over the past 18 months that were strange or offensive. And Mike Pence just didn't do it. He was he was very well prepared. He was very disciplined. He was very, you know, like all, all the stuff they like teach you in a media training to do. Just mm-hmm. like just talk about what you want to talk about. And like Mike Pence does not want to talk about Elisa Machado or whether Vladimir Putin is amazing or, um, you know, Has whether, Trump whether Mexicans taxes? are racists or Donald Trump's tax returns. And so he just he just didn't, right? And and it was. I, I mean, I think you know we'll we'll have to see how that sort of plays out. Um, but it was a window into an interesting alternate reality in which Pence did not separate himself from Donald Trump's campaign themes entirely. You know, he he sort of he hit Democrats for. You know, being anti-police, he he hit on on law and order themes. He gave a sort of thinking man's version of the deportation force concept, but it was completely divorced from the kind of wild antics that we've come to associate with with the Donald Trump show. And it, it seemed to me that it was probably all things considered not an evening that would worry Hillary Clinton's campaign, but that should make people. I don't know. Take take a little bit more more seriously. It's sort of the the idea of an enduring. Um, you, you hesitate to associate Donald Trump with policy exactly, but that but that there there is a recognizable core there that in the hands of a more disciplined, more professional politician uh, looks looks pretty good and and effective and sellable to me. I think this speaks to like one of the larger ideas of the debate. I think we were talking before before we even went on air. It didn't feel like a weedsy debate. Like there wasn't a lot of policy. But I think what you can kind of draw out from it is kind of what this means for the future of the Republican Party. Um, Dara Lind, one of our reporters, wrote a really great piece on this overnight about Trumpism after Trump. And I think on the one hand, there's this expectation you, if you do have a Donald Trump loss that there's a lot of hand-wringing. There's a lot of, like, what do we do? We're in such disarray. And maybe there isn't. Like, maybe what we saw last night is kind of you see a larger scale version of that, where you kind of don't acknowledge these things that have happened. You, like, you have the running mate for Trump, like, not acknowledging the things he is saying. When Tim Kaine brings them up, he just kind of moves on. Like Matt said, like, you do in media training, where they kind of teach you to say, yes, but the important thing is X, and then you just, like, literally move on to a totally different subject, it makes me understand better how you could see 
a version of that happening on a larger scale after the election. Like Matt said, not moving away from some of the ideas that Trump has generated, because obviously there's this large part of the population that his meal, his message appeals to that is energized by him and, and they don't disappear after the election. But it makes it easier to see how this becomes not this like moment of of panic and what do we do now and disarray, but just kind of moving on in a quiet way if you have literally the guy who was running on his ticket already doing the same thing. Let me make a contrary argument here. I think I used to be a believer in post-Trump Trumpism, and I've become less and less of one as time has gone on. And I think Mike Pence is actually a really good way to explore the different facets of this. So there is no doubt that there is a message strategy that could uh, succeed Donald Trump. You could very much imagine a politician who took Donald Trump's immigration restrictionism, nationalism, traditionalism, racial conservatism, uh, white resentment. There, there, there are things you can put together with a more skilled, genteel politician. And, and as Mike Pence did last night, you can make them sound a little bit more normal on a national stage. But it's actually, I think, worth looking at who Mike Pence is and why that wouldn't happen, why Mike Pence wouldn't run that campaign if he ran in 2020. Mike Pence is a candidate who is extremely close to the Koch brothers, which I don't mean in a conspiratorial way, I think, which which folks often talk about. But the Koch brothers do have policy positions and, and their policy positions, their original uh, donors to the, the Cato Institute tend to have a, a libertarian theme to them. They're reasonably pro-immigration. They're pretty pro-criminal justice reform. Whereas what Mike Pence was having to do last night on Donald Trump's ticket was be extremely restrictionist on immigration, was be extremely traditionalist on law and order issues. He went on what might have been ineffective, but was a very fallacious and for the current Republican Party, very old school riff on law and order, suggesting implicit bias wasn't a real thing. And, and this is what I think is interesting about trying to think about Trumpism after Trump. There, it is not the case that before Donald Trump, we did not know that there might be a constituency in the Republican Party for a policy platform that combined a sort of, econ, uh, a sort of anti-trade economic populism with a social conservatism and a, a racial traditionalism. I don't really know how to say that kindly. But the reason people didn't do it, the reason it never worked, the reason, and, and I would really use him as a counterexample, the reason Mike Huckabee did not become the Republican nominee in 2008 or 2012 or 2016 is because there really are things that the party does for you in terms of directing money towards you, in terms of sending signals to the media about who should get coverage, in terms of just making sure you're heard. And what Donald Trump was able to do was short circuit those things. He was able, by dint of his own money, which he ultimately didn't really need to spend, but it meant he could. He was able, by his own celebrity, by his shamelessness and skill in, in, in securing media attention, he was able to evade the normal ways a party shuts down an argument it doesn't want to have. And what I think is sort of interesting when you think about this is, yes, I think Mike Pence showed why a more skilled politician could do could run on a Trumpish uh, campaign. But I also think Mike Pence's career, who he's close to, how he's risen up in Republican politics, shows sort of why it wouldn't happen, because he would lose the sources of institutional support that created and trained him in the first place. But see, I feel like the the sort of post-nomination wrapping Donald Trump, though, has shown that there is more possibility of, of doing that than you're giving credit for, right? That at one point, Donald Trump was talking about raising taxes on the rich, right? Which we know is an overwhelmingly popular idea. And we know that Donald Trump dropped immediately, right? And I think the reason Donald Trump dropped that is that the Republican Party would throw a fit. Like there is no way Paul Ryan would endorse someone who wanted to raise taxes on the wealthy. But I think we've seen that like Republicans have all lined up behind Trump on trade, Trump on crime, Trump on immigration. And, and I think that like part of what Mike Pence was showing, it was a, a proof of concept that like professionalized neo-Trumpism looks good and that Trump has shown us that, you know, it, it's true that the Koch brothers and some uh, uh, Republicans who, who they work with wanted to field test this idea of a more libertarian-ish Republican Party. But I think we've seen that 
Republicans are open to going in the the Trumpier direction that like the core commitments on taxes, on environmental regulation, on abortion, on gun rights, you know, are are what they really, really care about and that there is flexibility for people to take to be criminal justice reformers, but also to be law and order types, right? That's like in the zone of flexibility. And I think that we're seeing that you know, there was a, a stab, right, like a Rand Paul and Mike Pence was even part of this idea that, you know, small government should should incorporate criminal justice reform ideas. But I think I think politically we're seeing that doesn't work. I mean, it doesn't work with the Republican base. It, it maybe doesn't work with the voters. And also that Democrats, you know, particularly as Barack Obama personally steps off the stage, there is more and more pressure on white Democrats to acknowledge um, and embrace the concerns of, of non-white Americans in a way that creates political vulnerabilities. I think it's true that had Mike Pence ran on this agenda in 2016, that the institutional forces in the Republican Party would have sidelined him. Not that Mike Pence is, is so great, but if some Republican... You have always believed yeah, Mike Pence yeah. is so great. I, I don't want to uh, hear this from you, Matt. <laughs> don't go back now. Sorry. I, I, I have never believed that Mike Pence is great. I have always believed that Mike Pence is well-networked with the different constituencies and that has a good pulse on like where Republicans are. And you love I, Mike Pence. And I think that, you know, I think that he, uh, well, you know, I actually, here's what I do. Go on. I have thought for years that the smart thing for Republicans to do would be to nominate one of these politically successful, bland Midwestern governors who they're constantly electing because bland Midwesterners are an important swing group in general elections. And they never seem to want to do that because they're so boring, but they should, they should try it at some point. But all I'm saying is I think, I think that the, the, Past is one thing, right? That like it took a Donald Trump to put Trumpism on the agenda. But then now that we've seen what worked from it and what didn't work from it, I feel like Republicans will be much more open to the idea of, you know what, there was some some stuff here that got us votes. There was some stuff here that people liked. Um, there was some stuff here that people, you know, thought was too bizarre. But that like if we can incorporate this into, you know, our professional politics, uh, you know, we could we could get somewhere. Yeah. And to kind of go back to something you were saying, Ezra, you raised the idea that we kind of knew these people are out there. And I I guess I disagree a little bit that I don't think we knew the people who would support these types of ideas were out there in as big as numbers as we did until Trump came along. And, you know, going back to like the Huckabee example, I think there you have a case of someone who supports some of these ideas, but like isn't doing it in the way the way that Trump has isn't, like you said, like is not the entertainer, is not the celebrity, is not the kind of well-known person who can get those people out of the woodwork and kind of buck institutions. And it seems like almost like a floodgate opening in a way is how I think about it. That yes, like Matt was saying, I don't think this could have worked for Huckabee in 2016. Like he could not have shown up with the Trump message and delivered it. But now that it's out there, like now it's out there in the ether, now that you have institutions seeing that it appeals to people. And, and I think we have learned about kind of beliefs that we didn't know were out there in as as strong of a way, as large as a way as we did with previous elections, that it makes me more more bullish than you are on kind of the future of Trump and Trumpism without Trump, that it could continue because you have this proof and you you kind of needed that bombastic character once to get it out there to mobilize these people. And that puts it on the radar in a way that it hasn't been in previous elections and possibly makes it more more acceptable to these kind of established elite types going forward. I, I think one reason I say that we knew they were out there is that I think of Trump very much as a descendant of the Pat Buchanan, Ross Perot style of politics. Pat Buchanan running sort of an insurgency within the Republican Party that was unexpectedly potent. And then Russ Perot obviously being a, a third party candidate. But both of them showing that there there really did seem to be a group of, you know, white middle to downscale uh, voters who were a lot less economically conservative than the Republican Party, but a lot, but but very traditionalist, very skeptical of immigration, very skeptical of foreign trade and foreign entanglements. 
Uh, I actually think it's in some ways an important part of Trump's appeal that he at least says he was against the Iraq war. Obviously, he wasn't, but it is a, a, a useful line for him in signaling to this group of people. And we, we've seen this for a long time in in the European far right. So I don't know. Uh, the other thing that I think is hard to do right now in the heat of a campaign, and I, I certainly should admit this about myself, is it's very hard to project forward to how parties are going to feel after the outcome. So obviously, maybe Donald Trump wins, and then Donald Trumpism is definitely a thing. But it might be that Latino turnout is overwhelming. And it is like Hillary Clinton doesn't win by four points. She wins by nine points. And she wins by nine points on the backs of downscale white voters actually not coming out, but uh, non-white voters being terrified by Donald Trump coming out in very large numbers. And and I think how the Republican Party reads those results, whatever they may be, a, a, assuming they lose, will really drive the question of which direction they go. Now, obviously, they cannot do what they tried to do after 2012 and become much more cosmopolitan, develop a, a whole new immigration reform plan. But I am I'm skeptical that they will go in a sort of Trumpish direction if the argument out of this is that it gave the country a third straight Democratic uh, term. I actually want to bring up something, though, that is a little bit off topic. And, and obviously, if somebody else wants to, to jump in on the, the neo-Trumpism, they should. But I thought from a Weedsy perspective, the beginning of the debate was kind of interesting and unusual. Uh, it was a very good debate for the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, which probably I the most name out. checks they've ever gotten. Yeah, in a it, presidential it's unbelievable, actually. Debate. And it was just weird, actually, to hear it in this context. Um, the, it is, I, I will say, as a framing point here, that there are a lot of strange strictures on, uh, you know, quote unquote, objective political journalism. And one of the strange things about it is that there are a bunch of positions that if you held them, you would be seen as biased, like single payer is good or cutting taxes on rich people is good. Either one of those would be, you know, you taking a side. But the position elite journalists are allowed to hold without it being read as any kind of favoritism towards anybody is that debt is bad. Uh, that the bat, that the budget should be balanced or brought close to balance immediately, and and you saw that in this debate where the first couple of questions just totally bizarrely were about the the moderator came out and and, and said in reference to CRFB uh, analysis of the Trump and Clinton campaign the tax plans it shows Trump adds trillions to the national debt and 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 Clinton adds billions but suggested neither one of them solves a national debt but, well, which I, I think guess an is important true, point but it's just is, a weird thing to want to solve right now she also didn't phrase it that way right it, it was that both raised the debt when there was this huge issue yes. of magnitude it wasn't huge so I think um the CFRB so CFRB for those who don't know it's a uh, I think a think tank here in DC that is generally very anti debt I think is a fair way. To describe yeah, certainly, certainly long term. Certainly I mean, I long term. Been, they, yeah. They're, they're pro short term stimulus when you need it. But okay. they are like their their reason to live is that we should lower long term entitlement debt from long term entitlement. Right. I mean, right. Re responsible means less debt. Yes. And, and so yes. their report has found that the Clinton Clinton's proposals would raise the debt by 200 billion over the next decade. Trump's proposals would raise it by 5.3 trillion, which is quite an order of magnitude. We have a great cartoon explainer up on Vox by Alvin Chang, uh, Chang that explains all of this. But it was such an odd false equivalence, too. Like, I think all of us being like wonky budget nerds were like, what is this? Like, they are so different in how they would change the budget. So I think aside from your point about why is this an accepted norm, it was also very odd to treat the two as equivalent because they are both in this bucket of raising the debt that they all of a sudden became like the same tax plans and like the same problems. The debt is just not a problem, right? I mean, what? however much either of them raise the debt, it's just we're not facing high interest rates. We're not facing any problems associated with the debt. And then, and then the next question was about Social Security shortfalls decades in the future. And it was just given, I mean, there are real economic problems the country faces. I mean, just that the same fucking day, Bill Clinton was out bashing Obamacare in a really weird way. And it was just so bizarre to see the vice presidential debate focus on these things that, that it just, I can't imagine who is the voter or who is anybody out there who is like, like these are the issues at the front of their mind. Well, and I, and I think to, 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 to clarify the point, right, I mean, I think we understand as media people, right, that not only are there affirmative statements you can make that sort of 
encode an ideological slant. But the questions that you ask can also do that, right? If you had a debate which was focused on the questions of what are you going to do to ensure that women have access to safe contraceptives? What are you going to do to reduce carbon dioxide emissions? What are you going to do to reduce the incidence of poverty among people who already have full-time jobs, right? That would be putting a very left tilt on the dialogue because part of what is like constitutive of liberal politics in the United States is to say that those things are problems, right? Whereas if you ask questions about like, what are you going to do to make it easier for small businesses to file their taxes in a legal and efficient way? What are you going to do to protect the rights of American sportsmen to obtain firearms, right? That would be putting a conservative slant on it. But the belief seems to be uh, among a lot of reporters that simply defining high levels of government borrowing as a problem is non-slanted, right? In the way that if you asked, what are you going to do to make the economy grow faster? I think both parties would claim, uh, would say like, that is an important problem, right? There isn't, you could have a political party that was like a limits to growth movement, uh, but we don't have one, right? And so it's, but it's just like, it's not obvious that that the debt, it certainly doesn't go without saying or argument that having the government borrow money um, is bad. I, I don't think it's bad. There's a, a vogue recently for Alexander Hamilton. And like one of his policy initiatives was that he wanted to create a national debt. Right. It wasn't that he couldn't make the revenue and the spending uh, line up right or he made some kind of mistake, that he wanted it to be the case that a savings vehicle existed that was guaranteed by the full faith and credit of the United States government because he thought, I think correctly, that it would be healthier to create a, a national economy that had this kind of safe savings vehicle, an investment vehicle that invested economic actors in the integrity of, of the federal government. And of course, there were people who who thought he was wrong about that. But I mean, it's like a real idea. Like, should the government carry a large debt load or, or shouldn't it? Um, and to just do questions that assume it shouldn't um, is strange. And then if you're going to harp on it, as Sarah was saying, it, it's weird to come so poorly armed with actual information about the candidate's budget proposals. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's, it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. So you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com slash weeds. There was something that struck me as fascinating in the way that both, neither candidate was actually prepared for this. And I think one reason they weren't prepared for it, it's really interesting just how much this has changed since 2012. In 2012, the debt, and it was only four years ago, it wasn't that long, the debt was the issue. I mean, the whole reason Paul Ryan was on the ticket was that he stood for, now I, I don't think his plan achieved this, but he stood for the Republican idea that debt was the looming problem in the country, that there had to be massive cuts to government services to do anything about it. And and one thing that I was think, reflecting on watching that was just how far and how fast the Republican Party has traveled on that question in, in four years. Donald Trump has a plan that is the most irresponsible tax cut plan I think probably ever put to paper in the Republican Party. It is an extraordinary thing to read. I think speaking of the the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget, I think Mark Goldman gave me a quote sometime. There's something like it's not even like in the universe of the realistic. But 
it isn't, I think it would be something like half of all income tax revenue would disappear. <laughs> but but beyond even that, they're just not trying to define things they would cut. They don't talk even really vaguely about things they would cut. They're just not concerned with debt as a, as a as a problem. Donald Trump, when asked about things like Social Security and Medicare, he will tend to say that he will just make the economy grow so quickly that these cuts will not be necessary. And by the same token, the, the Clinton campaign does try to pay for everything. And, and we'll talk about, you know, you know, a fiscally responsible plan. But it's really not where they're focused either. And and this does reflect objective reality of, of at least short term debt coming down a bit over the last couple of years. But it was just a little bit fascinating to watch a, a question set that felt like it was from 2012 put into the 2016 election, and it just looked very strange. But I also thought – I thought there was a real failing on Tim Kaine's part here. Yeah. Um, when when he got that question and sort of throughout the debate, right, when it became clear that Pence was sort of pivoting away from, from Donald Trump, Tim Kaine, it seemed to me, did not do anything to like – explicate to a viewer what the policy stakes in the election were, you know, Uh, whereas Mike Pence, I mean, I don't particularly agree with his framing, but that's sort of part of the problem. You know, Mike Pence put a sort of standard, normal, conservative gloss on things that, you know, Clinton stands for big taxes and big government, and we're going to get the economy moving again. And Cain did not do anything to highlight the idea that if Donald Trump becomes president, not just wacky Trump tweets are going to happen, but like everyone is going to lose their health insurance. Uh, lots of poor kids are not going to get food assistance. Um, you, you know, there's going to be enormous tax cuts for rich people. Uh, efforts that have been made to curb carbon dioxide pollution are going to go away, right? This this kind of stuff that to the extent that Mike Pence like wants to talk policy with a conservative frame, you would think Democrats would want to put back and and discuss policy, you know, in in their progressive frame. And some of that speaks to kind of overall campaign strategy of the of the Clinton Kane campaign. But part of it, I think, is that Tim Kane is a guy who um, it's clear that the Democrats really, really like him. He's been promoted very rapidly from a, a whole series of, of jobs, was DNC chair, has been put on the ticket as, as vice president. But he's never in that time been like a hugely effective public communicator. When he was DNC chair, he wasn't like on television constantly crushing it as like a top Barack Obama surrogate. And Hillary Clinton is someone who has similar, I would say, um, strengths as a as a politician is someone who the people she works with are really enthusiastic about, who's very broadly knowledgeable, who uh, is widely respected by people who are in the game, but who is not a great sort of writer and narrator of, of what it is she is about. And it it struck me that we're looking at a world as as Obama, you know, steps off off the stage. If we have a Clinton Kane administration, that we are going to have you know, a democratic administration that is is led by people who are not very strong at presenting a sort of concise, coherent, this is what we are trying to do, like this is how we how we think of the world kind of thing. Um, and, it, you know, I don't know how much that matters exactly, although as a, as a writer, I always find it a little disturbing that Hillary Clinton doesn't seem to be able to like convey, like, this is my point. Uh, when she's when right. she's saying things, yeah, I mean, I could see it going either way. Like we were saying with the future of the Republican Party, it's a little hard to predict what the future looks like. But I could see one version of a world where it, this kind of reminds me of Ezra's profile of Hillary. About it seems like Tim Kaine is someone who's impressed people, like the people who like him, the people who work with him like him a lot. That, and you could see that being, you know, not a great skill for running for vice president. Um, it, it wasn't a skill that was on display last night, but could be a quite effective skill for governing for when you have to talk to legislators, when you have a lot of the work you're doing is with kind of a smaller group of people, the kind of legislators you work with, the lobbyists, the White House staff, that the ability to build those relationships could be a quite important skill and one that you don't get to show off in a campaign setting, that there's no good way 
to show off this skill of like building the small set of relationships when what you're trying to do in a campaign is woo a very large group of voters in the millions. And then you could see kind of the other side of it, where if you have these kind of uninspiring speeches where I think, you know, Obama with the State of the Unions, with his larger addresses, like really was bringing people along with him to reelection. He was kind of creating this group of people who felt quite passionate about his presidency. I don't I don't fully know what what happens when that's missing. And it feels very much like a trade off, like everyone has their set of skills. Obama has been a fantastic orator. I I'm curious and interested to see like where this other set of skills goes. One other thing, you know, I would add about Kane's performance last night. It, it did seem like he came in with like a very clear idea. Like I have these lines, I'm going to deliver them. And like, that is what I'm going to do. And nothing about Pence will change it. And I think he's been panned a little bit for sticking to that strategy when clearly Pence came in with a totally other game. But, you know, I also see it from his side where, you know, they have all these clips now of Pence saying, you know, he didn't say that for things like Trump definitely said, things Pence definitely said that I think will be churned out in some kind of ad format very clearly. So I I think there was there was a method to what he was doing that was not useless in the way that I think it's it's been framed in a lot of writing that I've seen. Being vice president often isn't actually a great way to become super popular. Uh, traditionally, the vice president role is an attack dog role. And, and that doesn't being the attack dog, it, it doesn't really make you well liked. And, and Kane came in and did that last night. You know, you can you can argue about stylistic things. I think he you know, other people could have maybe been a more effective attack dog. Pence just had a very comfortable demeanor on TV. But it really was the case that you know, Tim Kaine went out there and did what the Hillary Clinton campaign needed him to do. And Mike Pence came out there and did something that actually created, at this point, a day of extremely bad headlines for the Donald Trump campaign. He he managed to win in a way that was a loss for his campaign, because all anybody is talking about is the way his performance showed how difficult Donald Trump actually is to defend. So, you know, how you score this debate depends on what perspective you're scoring it from. If you're looking at which campaign won, I think it's probably the Hillary Clinton campaign. If you're looking at which politician won, it's Mike Pence. But a little bit to Matt's point, if you're looking at how any of these folks will govern, I think there are, are, are two things that are interesting here. One is that Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine really do seem to share a kind of personal characteristic set what they're good at, the way they've risen in politics, who they've impressed, how they've impressed them. I'm actually, I always think it's very telling that Tim Kaine is actually on Hillary Clinton's ticket because in 2008, Kaine was, I believe, the third statewide non-Illinois politician to endorse Barack Obama. And the endorsement of a popular Southern governor, when at that point, at that early in the campaign, it looked like Hillary Clinton, you know, really had a lock on the establishment of the Democratic Party. It was a big feather in Obama's cap. And a, a real blow to Clinton. And somehow over the ensuing eight years, Kane got so in the Clinton's good graces that that initial it goes too far to call it a betrayal. But but that initial blow was forgotten or forgiven uh, at such a level that, that he actually ended up on the ticket. So there's something about the two of them that they are really, really, really good at making peace with former enemies. They are really good at doing this kind of inside game. And and, and you can see how they would govern very much as a unit. We have already begun hearing reports from John Harwood of CNBC and the New York Times, from John King of CNN, that Donald Trump himself was not happy with Mike Pence's performance, that, that, Mike, that Donald Trump watched that and he felt Mike Pence wasn't defending him enough. He does not like hearing that Mike Pence did better than him. He does not like hearing that Mike Pence did better than him by throwing him under the bus. Uh, one interesting thing to see is if Trump blows his stack in the next coming days as a way to regain uh, control of the spotlight, but in, in a more direct way. Uh, it's very likely from from the initial reporting I'm reading and just from what we seem to know about Donald Trump that Mike Pence actually hurt his influence in a Trump campaign yesterday that far from the Trump is a guy who likes to surround himself with real sycophants and loyalists. And while Mike Pence, you know, went out there and, 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 and did a good job, you know, on a sort of like a Mike Pence level, he showed himself to maybe not be as much of a sycophant and a loyalist as a Rudy Giuliani or a Chris Christie who will defend or Newt Gingrich who will defend literally any batshit thing Donald Trump says. And, and so I think that if you are actually a Republican who likes Mike Pence watching that in a way, that's it's a little bit of a bad night for you. 
because even if Donald Trump does win, the hope that Mike Pence will be the guy really whispering in his ear and leading him to a more orthodox conservatism probably became that much less likely last night. Already, Trump had not been leaning on Pence very much. And this is likely to only widen the divide between two men who are already very, very different in their attitudes, demeanors, personalities and tendencies and are are now going to be a little bit more separated by some mixture of jealousy and resentment. And that kind of speaks to like we were talking about like a Kane Clinton or Clinton Kane White House, like what a Trump Pence one would look like. I remember there's that quote that's circulating um, from Kasich a few months back about how um, the Trump campaign told him, you know, you could have domestic and foreign policy. And it kind of like gave rise to this idea that, you know, Trump would just be like this figurehead. He just wants to be in the White House. He doesn't want to actually do the work of governing. It seems like, like, as you're saying, Ezra, like there isn't much space for someone. There isn't much space for influence. There is not much space for the person who might be in charge of like domestic and foreign policy to actually be running the show there. That seems like a less plausible version of a Trump administration than I think when that quote was circulated a few months ago. there's kind of this like belief floating around that, you know, he doesn't want to do the actual work of it, that it'll just Mm -hmm. be outsourced. And I think we've talked about this on the weeds, maybe last week. I don't know. At some point we talked about this, the idea that the role for an advisor, the role for someone like Pence, who like has some very clear and strong beliefs on um, particularly social issues, that he has like very clear beliefs on abortion, on, on Medicaid. Like he has these very strong beliefs and it seems less and less likely that those would get much of a voice within a potential Trump Well, we, we really saw that on Russia, right? Where, yes. Oh, where yeah. Mike, Mike, Mike Pence, I mean, what was fascinating there was we saw Mike Pence came out with Mitt Romney's Russia policy and did not, he sort of like tried to gaslight us about what Donald Trump's Russia policy is. Mike Pence, I would not say, you can go through it and like find something Mike Pence said about Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin that isn't accurate. But like beyond some specific lie, he just painted this alternate reality in which the Trump-Pence ticket has Mike Pence's Russia policy, which is broadly the same as Mitt Romney and John McCain's Russia policy. He even like referenced back to the idea that there's a chain of Russian aggression that began with the incursion into Georgia in 2008, that the problem with the Obama administration has been too soft, you know, you know this, this whole thing. And he just completely ignored the Russia policy that Donald Trump has actually articulated. And, and that should, I think, really disabuse Republicans of the notion that Mike Pence will have any influence in a Trump administration because the fact that Pence didn't even feel the need to like get on board with Trump's Russia policy, it just shows that the two of them are not discussing the agenda or anything, it seems, like on any level. that Or discussing but coming to totally different <laughs> – yeah, where I mean they're not they're not attempting to yes. <laughs> synthesize a coherent view of things. And you can even see it in the debate. Like Mike Pence was really prepared for the debate. And I saw there were, you know, the pre-debate leaks said that Pence had been doing debate prep since July. Now, I mean, I don't know if that's true, um, but he certainly seemed well prepared. Uh, he spent a lot of time rehearsing with with Scott Walker, they said, who we know is a, an influential, you know, Republican person, not someone who's been involved in Donald Trump circles at all. Um, And you can see that, you know, Mike Pence, love him, hate him, whatever you want to think about him, is existing like in a Pence land that has nothing to do with with Donald Trump. Uh, He's not changing his views to bring them particularly into alignment with Trump's. And certainly Trump is not going to change his views to put them in alignment with Pence. And we have a long tradition in the United States of vice presidents being completely sidelined and ineffectual in office. Uh, That tradition has changed over the past three or four vice presidencies. uh, But institutionally, it's not an office that has any kind of power. Um, So unless unless Trump, you know, the, the vice president to be an effective member of the administration uh, the, the president needs to like like them and want them to be influential. It's it's like any other sort of staff job. It seems like Hillary Clinton does like Tim Kaine. I mean, there's an electoral calculus always with with a VP. Uh, but but as you were saying, Ezra, you know, there's sort of a bad personal history there that she seems to have like changed her 
mind about. Mm-hmm. It seems natural. I mean, I don't think we know exactly what he would do, but that she wouldn't put him on the ticket unless she thought he was like a smart, good person who she wants on the team. Uh, whereas Trump, I mean, we know he picked Pence to sort of throw a bone to congressional Republicans. Um, and and he doesn't, you know, they, there just appears to be no meeting of the minds at all. All right. Is it time for right. a, a paper of the week? Yeah. Let's talk about college football. <laughs> sort of. A favorite, a favorite weed subject. Yeah. Um, so uh, we got, a, uh, of course, a National Bureau of Economic Research uh, paper for you by uh, Azkan Aaron and Nasi Mor- Mokan. I'm not totally sure how to pronounce this guy's name. So apologies. But uh, this is a paper that looks at sentencing uh, by, by judges who have uh, juvenile uh, defendants. And it uses as its independent variable uh, college football game outcomes. And it shows that when the local college football team loses a game, sentences get uh, harsher uh, in the subsequent week. It shows that the harshness falls disproportionately on African-American defendants. And as a good robustness check, it shows that um, the, the harshness impact is concentrated in judges who are alumni of the actual local school, uh, they do a they do a few more uh, mathier kind of kind of checks in there, um, and it's it's the kind of thing where at first you read the top line and I was like, oh my god, this is shocking, um, and then if you kind of get yourself out of shock. You know, and don't think about like young black kids rotting in jail because the college football team lost. And you think like, okay, you have a job with a workplace and some colleagues. You know that people's job performance is impacted by their mood. You know that their mood is impacted by things that are, you know, it just, it wouldn't be shocking to hear that like somebody said something a little crabby in a meeting, you know, and like a sports team that they love lost a big game the night before like it's normal it's it's normal human nature and the paper is showing that uh, the justice system is depending on human beings who have the flaws that we expect human beings to have it just has like horrifying consequences right i mean like this paper we were chatting about it before but it's like a pretty horrifying paper to think about when you do actually like you don't get out of the shock and you think about the consequences of it i think what's ratchets up the horror, like you're saying, that these are things that happen to all of us. Um, I live with a very serious baseball fan. And like when the World Series was going on last year, like I'm sure there was some sort of negative effect on his work. But he's an economist and he's not sending people to jail. So like that was probably fine. And like, you know, maybe he was like slightly less productive at his at his job working on economic things. But here it's like I write about medicine a lot. And you see the same things in medicine, right, where I think there's a similar there's other kind of higher stakes where you have doctors who at certain times of the day, for example, are are better at their jobs. They're less likely to have errors than, you know, at the beginning of the day than later in the day. And that you have all these consequences that rest on a lot of our institutions, a lot of our institutions that have very big effects on other people's lives at the end of the day are humans at the end of the day are people making decisions, people deciding to do their jobs in a certain way. It makes me want more of like a a robot automated sort of system that like does not have these these human whims that we might not think about in our day to day, but are probably quite present in the work but, all of us are doing. But to be more negative on this, why I can come up with some theories, but why was the effect of having a bad day for a judge disproportionately visited out upon non-white defendants. It turns out Mike Pence was probably wrong about implicit bias. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because that, yeah, like, it's true that we all have bad days. Like, I am really tired today. And I think that if people came to me with a lot of questions about stuff, I would probably be shorter than I normally am. But, yeah, I, I expect, and as you say, there's like this research on doctors. But what I think is unusual in this paper is that you're seeing that a generalized crabbiness is leading to racially disproportionate results. And and that's very disturbing, right? And and, and, and disturbing in a different way. Uh, now, yeah, I mean, maybe implicit bias, it, it, it could be other things. I mean, do, do the authors speculate on that, Matt? 
I mean, I, they they don't go, you know, deep into the into the the psychology of what's going on. Um, you know, I think they have some like jargony word that means the judges are maybe kind of racist. Um, so something worth worth noting is there, there's a sort of broader literature along these themes that it's it's all a little bit narrow. But there was a a study of uh, Israeli judges about about five years ago that led to um, at least a, a funny uh, Discover magazine headline, justice is served, but more so after lunch. Um, and it, it shows like sentences as like a function of like how long it's been since the judge has eaten most recently. And like hungry judges deal out harsher sentences um, than than ones who uh, are just back from their from their lunch break. You know, and then there's there's also research that I've read uh, about how presidential approval ratings are linked to the outcomes of NFL games. Um, you know, which is to say that there's like a you can read this and you can be like, oh my God, college football. But I mean I think what the what the literature is showing is that in general, people, including uh when they think about policy and when they think about exercising important public functions are very bad at like emotionally segmenting different parts of their life off from each other. And the things that are clearly irrelevant to the task uh, actually wind up uh, exerting a, a, a big and in this case, with with the racial angle, you know, a non-random sort of sort of impact on things. This is like why I'm excited for automation, right? Like because yeah. we could take this. I don't know exactly like how we end up with robot judges, but like this makes the case a lot stronger for me, particularly for like automation of um, like surgery where you see some of the same effects. Like you were mentioning the study of Israeli judges, you see some of the same effects in medicine where um, there's one study that had to do with when doctors were close to the end of their shift and they made very different decisions about patient care than when they were at the beginning of their shift, kind of knowing like they had to get home, they had to get out of there. And I don't know. Robots don't leave their office. Like they don't have to worry about if they ate lunch or when they're leaving their job. So I, this, these are not places, particularly like judges, are not places where we think a lot about automation and moving to like a to a robot workforce. But this at least like lays the kernel of the idea in my mind of the positive case for that. I agree. And and, and one thing I would say on that is Tim Lee at, at Vox had a good piece this week about why the next 30 years of technological disruption will be harder than the last 30. And, and the point he's making is that areas like housing and real estate and hospitals and healthcare and education have turned out to be pretty difficult because it people like dealing with humans. Uh, we don't always just want raw efficiency. But I, I disagree with that. I've, I've been going through a six-month dental nightmare where just my dentists have no idea what's going on, keep bouncing me back to one another, just trying operations. I, as far as I can tell, almost at random, it keeps not getting fixed and getting worse. And I would really like some computer to just input my symptoms and, and read me out something that I am confident is a best guess based on uh, an analysis of the most up-to-date literature on what I am presenting. And, and I, I, I do think that we, you know, I don't know how we're going to frame, frame this in different ways, but there are a lot of things where I do not think, where I think we want to interact with humans, but human error is a much bigger part of the program than people realize. I, I think there are a lot of, of, of places in the economy where the comfort we get from, you know, good bedside manner is really obscuring how many, say, medical errors there are or how totally contingent judicial decisions are. And that the more there are alternatives, the more there's going to be an economic incentive to publicize that kind of research and to talk about those kinds of things. I mean, driverless cars will be another place where there was a big outcry when the first person died due to uh, a mistake from a driverless car recently. But like human beings driving is a completely like lunatic thing that it is amazing that society has absorbed for so long because so many people die from it. And and so I do think that one thing that might change in the culture is that as alternatives become more viable, there is more incentive to have these kinds of conversations. And, and, and that might change opinions a little bit on what people are willing to do with a robot versus what they, they only want a human to, to be there for. But one issue with the judges is that it's not just that they're humans rather than robots, but it's that we've chosen to make the sentencing paradigm like 
deliberately very, very squishy, right? I mean, there's an idea out there called evidence-based sentencing, which says at least theoretically the sentences that people get should be based on some kind of a statistical model about you know, reoffending likeliness, right? That there should be a clear objective, which is like to minimize crime in a sort of cost-effective way in terms of person years of jail sentences handed out. And if you had a framework like that in place, you could then imagine it becoming increasingly sophisticated and turning it over to computers or, or robots or, or something like that. But we don't have a framework like that, right? So the the degree of sentence is right now is like supposed to be handed out based on some emotion-laden, fuzzy assessment of like how terrible the person is. And you could make a computer that does that, but you would almost have to embed the same irrational prejudices that are that are leading to these outcomes. Like that's what it's it's built for these. I mean, we had there was all this like mm. hue and cry about the the Stanford swimmer guy and his 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 rape charges, where I think many people felt it was like vaguely outrageous to be giving somebody a soft sentence on the grounds that he's a promising young white male athlete. The criminal justice system is like really set up to to deliver those kind of outcomes, right? Like it, the judges are told to make these totally fuzzy sort of pointless Right, and then uh, you end up like, one of my good friends is an immigration lawyer, and she knows there are, like, good judges and bad judges to go in front of. Like, mm-hmm. some judges that will grant her case and some that won't, and, like, she hopes that she gets assigned one of the good judges. And this is, like, a more... It's a more explicit version of what this experiment is doing. It's her learning, like, through being an immigration attorney that she will... That some people have very different views, and they'll use that discretion in very different ways to decide the exact same case. And that has nothing to do with football games. It's like out in the open, like everyone in the immigration lawyer community like knows that this person is good and this person is bad to go in front of. We don't have to go. We don't have to like jump to robot judges. And if we want to make that jump to robot judges, we would need some kind of evidence, some kind of equation that we don't currently ask our justice. And there was a move, right? I mean, part of the tough on crime politics of the of the early 90s was to limit judges' discretion, uh, but it was to limit it in this like one way ratchet that like sentences had to be had to be longer uh, than they had been previously. Um, and you know there are other ways you could reduce judicial discretion uh, short of full automation. And conversely, if you want the judges to have a lot of discretion, it's not totally clear to me what automation would get you. Right? You could have twenty different AIs up there all handing out arbitrary sentences in their own weird computer way, uh, which doesn't seem like much progress. It's the future. <laughs> that's what we got. Oof. All right. I think that's it. Let's do it. This has been another fine episode of The Weeds. Thank you to my co-hosts, Sarah Cliff and Matthew Iglesias, to our producer, Ephim Shapiro. The Weeds is a Vox.com and Panoply production. You should listen to it every week, share it with your friends, tell your mom. It's terrific. We appreciate your presence, and we will see you soon. Bye.